We appreciate people who can see what we cannot see. I got a painful lesson when I crashed my car into a tree on a snowy day many years ago. I immediately felt something terribly wrong with my right hip. It was in the middle of a semester at seminary, and I was working as an assistant pastor at that time. So I felt I had no time to waste. So I was determined to walk out of that hospital on the same day if possible. When they took the x-rays, they initially did not detect anything. So far, so good. But a CT scan confirmed that I had a fracture. So I needed surgery, which means they had to open me up and put some pins and screws in there. So I spent that week at the hospital, humbled but thankful that someone could see what I could not see. Now, even with all these advances and medical knowledge and technology, we know that there are limits of science, even if we know the chambers, the walls and arteries of the physical heart, we're still left with the question of Jeremiah 17.9. Heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Thankfully, we have God's word as the surgical tool, as Hebrews 4.12 tells us. It is living and powerful, sharper than any double two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And that we have Jesus, the great soul physician. He knows what's going on inside of us. John 2.25 tells us he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And our Lord would be the first to tell you what's in us is not pretty. It's broken. You need help. He said in Matthew 15.18-19, Those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. During his time on earth, our Savior took his spiritual doctor practice on the road. Multiple times he entered into the heart of Jerusalem, clean out the impurities, diagnose the disease, and even deal with difficult patients who did not want to get better. So we'll see it again in today's passage. And so we'll turn to Luke 19, 45 to chapter 20, verse 19. If you want to follow along in your Bible. And if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that passage in page 737. Luke 19, 45, chapter 20, verse 19. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. 
Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I will also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dresser saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes at very hour sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So let's start with some structural observations. The chapter division certainly helps. I treat the last four verses of chapter 19 separately from what follows. Then chapter 20 verses 1 to 8 form another unit. After the transition of verse 1, you see verse 2 as an opening bookend and verse 8 as the closing bookend. Note the repeated words and phrases, tell by what authority do these things. And then there's another unit that begins in verse 9. This section also has bookends. The phrase in verse 9, tell this parable, has its near equivalent in spoken this parable in verse 19. That leaves us with three sections. But to understand the big picture here, we have to look for the golden thread, the common theme underlying the three sections. There's a pattern that emerges. It goes down like this. Jesus gets the religious leaders riled up and upset. But each time, what happens? They're too scared to act. At the end of chapter 19, they sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. In chapter 20, verse 6, they're afraid to discredit the work of John the Baptist. Why? They say among themselves, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. 
And then finally, we find in verse 19, the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people. So the leaders of Jerusalem had to bottle up their rage. They were caught in the middle between the voice of God spoken through Jesus and the voice of the people all around them. Now, what does this have to do with us? Well, we should listen to Jesus as he forces us to look within ourselves and look outward to the grand story of redemption. I also urge you to avoid the negative example of Christ's enemies here. Their refusal to believe in Jesus represents the sin of unbelief. And I would say, for us Christians here, to fight that sin of unbelief, there's three things we should do. First, beware of the idolatrous influence of love of money. Beware of the idolatrous love of money. That's chapter 19, verses 45 to 48. Secondly, repent and submit to God's authority. Repent and submit to God's authority. That's chapter 20, verses 1 to 8. Thirdly, honor God's Son and trust in Him. Honor God's Son and trust in Him. That's verses 9 to 19 in chapter 20. First, beware of the idolatrous love of money. The cleansing of the temple is a significant event in the Gospels. It happened Monday, the day after the triumphal entry. You may recall from our studies in Malachi in chapter 3, how the people were told to look for the Lord, the messenger of the covenant, to appear suddenly in the temple. The day of judgment would be a day of reform in worship. In the future, the Levites will offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. The offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord. This is all from Malachi 3. Christ the Messiah will see to it. And as a sign and preview of what's to come upon his return, Jesus cleansed the Jerusalem temple. My view is that this cleansing happened once at the beginning of his ministry, as recorded in John chapter 2, and then it happened again towards the end, as recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke is the least detailed among the three in narrating what happened. But like Matthew and Mark, Luke includes Jesus' citation of Isaiah 56, verse 7, and Jeremiah 7, 11. We read Jeremiah earlier. And these two verses provide the biblical rationale for the cleansing. Taken together, Isaiah and Jeremiah taught what the place of worship should be and what it has unfortunately become. The temple went from its honorable status as the house of prayer and it degenerated to become a den of thieves. The idolatrous love of money was a huge reason why. Now, the service of buying and selling to facilitate worship is not evil in itself, 
Picture worshipers from all over the world visiting Jerusalem. Think about how hard it would be to carry sheep, oxen, and doves from their homes. It'd be much more convenient to bring cash, exchange it to the local currency, and purchase animals for sacrifice. But some took this opportunity to make a huge profit. There's one commentator who thinks that the cost of doves sold inside a temple was 20 times more than those sold outside. Those in charge of the temple commerce were certainly guilty for allowing this to go on, and it looks like the consumers share in the blame too. After all, Jesus drove out those who bought as well as those who sold. Worship is not for buyers or sellers. It's about bringing glory to God. That's why we must be careful and beware of that idolatrous love of money. So what will it take to guard ourselves? As application here, two questions I want to ask, and you should ask yourself this week. First, is there that sin of greed that resides in me? Is there, is that sin of greed residing in me? And I speak to the leaders first, Bob, Bernardo, Steve, Stephen, and myself. It says in 1 Timothy 3 that elders and deacons must not be greedy for money. Be clear. But every one of us must be vigilant in this area. Later in 1 Timothy 6, we learn that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. We see that in verse 10. Please don't think that greed is merely an internal, individual problem. It affects your family, your church, and your community. Just ask Aiken. Second question, do I come to church as a consumer or do I come as a worshiper? Do I come to church as a consumer or do I come as a worshiper? Now, I'm not here to talk about your day job. I see no problem understanding supply and demand and forming a strategy for financial success in the world of business. When I go to an, when I go to an Orioles game at Camden Yards, I'm fully aware that a hot dog there costs a lot more than what I can get at Costco. Does that annoy me a bit? Sure. But hey, in the end, baseball game's a baseball game. Consumers will consume. And the vendors at the stadium got to feed their families too. But worship's not an entertainment, not a show. We're here to give, not to receive. It should not be about our convenience or making a profit. We have to have the mindset of David who wants worship to be a costly sacrifice. One time, Arauna, a denizen of Jerusalem, was willing to part with this land and give up his own animals to fulfill the king's desire to worship. But listen to David in 2 Samuel 24, 24. No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. Here's the most powerful man in Israel wanting to offer 
costly worship in Jerusalem. What will it cost you to worship God? As I hinted earlier, when we gather, we are living stones built up into a spiritual house. We are the temple of God as saints. And there is a call to worship we sang earlier. All ye who hear, now to his temple draw near. Join me in glad adoration. Let's make that the main focus. And let's beware of that idolatrous love of money. Repent of greed. Become a worshiper. Jesus taught these truths with passion. The crowds responded well. The last few words of chapter 19 tell us that the audience was hanging on to the speaker's every word. Meanwhile, as expected, the leaders were upset at what he said and did. And that leads to a discussion about the authority of Jesus. And from that discussion, we learned a second way to fight against the sin of unbelief. Repent and submit to God's authority. So after the cleansing of the temple, Luke, like Matthew and Mark, narrate a confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. They demand to know his source of authority. Our Lord, in reply, asked for their view on the baptism ministry of John, the forerunner of Christ. Christ's enemies refused to answer because if they're honest, they'd be bad-mouthing John. If they say John's God's messenger, which is true, they'd be admitting that they are guilty of rejecting him. So they declined to answer. No comment. Given the choice of A or B, they choose C. So Jesus also refuses to answer their question. Now this question about John gets us asking, what's John's baptism all about? In a word, it's about repentance. That's how the New Testament writer summarized it. And here's another way to summarize John's ministry. I say John pointed to the problem, and then John pointed to the solution. The problem was that we're sinners. There's a wrath to come. There's a fire kindled, and we are the firewood. John himself said back in Luke 3, 9, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit, fruit of repentance, is cut down and thrown into the fire. But John also spoke of the solution. As Paul said in Acts 19.4, John told the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one mightier than John, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, wash away sin, grant forgiveness in his name. All that to say, if the religious leaders had believed in John the Baptist, they would have believed that Jesus is the Christ. If they were convinced that the baptism of John was from heaven, they'd be convinced that the Son of Man descended from heaven. But they did not repent at John's preaching, and they're not about to trust in Christ's teaching. That's because they refused to repent 
and submit to God's authority. Repentance from sin and authority of Christ are such important concepts because they're directly connected to the gospel. In the middle of Luke chapter 20, verse 1, Luke asked that Jesus was preaching the gospel. So Christ is talking about the good news of salvation even while talking about the bad news of sin. He diagnoses the disease and administers the cure. But because the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders were so bent on undermining his authority, because they refused to repent as John demanded, they did not know the things that make for their peace. They could not see the Prince of Peace standing in front of them. If we don't look at our sins and depravity, we won't look to the Savior and His authority. It's tragic to see religious leaders of Jerusalem reacting like this to Jesus. But they needed to hear the truth. So Jesus goes on with the parable that exposes their evil. As we go on to Luke 29 to 19, we learn ourselves to fight unbelief. We must honor God's son and trust in him. As we read the Gospels, and maybe some of you guys are doing New Testament readings this year, we learn quickly that Jesus is a master storyteller. The parables were a very important part of our Lord's teaching. But here's an elementary question. What is a parable? I like the definition from Hampton Keithley. Quote, a parable is a fictitious or made-up story designed to teach a lesson through comparison that is true to life. Jesus' parables are like fables in that they teach something symbolically, but because Jesus' parables are true to life, you won't hear about talking trees or fire-breathing dragons. Instead, you'll find more commonplace experiences. But even though parables can sound rather simplistic and plain, they reveal grand truths about the kingdom. This parable of the vineyard is no exception. The story, along with the scriptural interpretation of Psalm 118, are found in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And I'll just summarize the parable first. So a man plants a vineyard, leaves it to vine dressers, and goes away for a while. At vintage time, or at least or the uh, harvest for wine, the owner sends servants to obtain some fruit. But you see, through the Gospels, these collectors are mistreated, beaten, wounded, stoned, treated shamefully, cast out, sent away empty-handed, and some even killed. Finally, we learn that the owner of the vineyard has a son whom he sends, thinking they wouldn't dare touch him. Both Mark and Luke emphasize that this father loves his son. The vine dressers see the son and decide among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. They murder him in hopes of stealing his inheritance. Now the burning question is this. What will the owner of the vineyard do in response? Everyone knows the answer. 
the teacher and the audience. He will destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And here's the interpretation. The owner is God himself. The vine dressers are the leaders of Israel. The servants are prophets sent to rebuke them of their sins. The son of the owner is Jesus, the son of God. Now, who are the others that are given the vineyard later? It's the church. Matthew 21, 43 tells us, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. So what it's saying is that until the millennial kingdom, Israel loses their title of God's favored nation. Meanwhile, in the present, the church enjoys that privilege because they bear the fruits of the kingdom. As expected, the Israelites listening have a hard time accepting how this parable ends. That's why we hear that shocked response of the people. Maybe there were some gasps in the audience. Certainly not. It's saying akin to, God forbid, or perish the thought. But even if the parable ends right there, we're not at the end of the redemption story. There is hope even for the Israelites who reject Jesus initially. Here's how the story continues. All the listeners have to do is turn back to Psalm 118. And I say turn back because just a day ago, the crowds were shouting and exclaiming words from that chapter, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Psalm 118, 25 to 26, they just have to move from verses 25 to 26, just a few lines back up to verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, while Psalm 118, verse 22 could apply to David's underdog story, ultimately we're talking about God, what God accomplishes through Jesus. You see it all throughout the New Testament, how this verse is applied to Jesus. Psalm 118, verse 22, provides a happy ending to the parable of the vineyard. Here's how they connect. Though he is God's son, in a few days, Jesus will be rejected. He'll be cast out of the city of Jerusalem and killed by its religious leaders. That's why Jesus is at first the stone which the builders rejected but he would become the chief cornerstone by rising from the dead. The chief cornerstone is that first stone laid down at the foundation of a building. It is the foundation of the foundation. It's the largest, strongest, and the most important stone at the corner to guide the workers toward completion. To go from rejected to cheaps and amazing transformation something only God can accomplish. It's truly marvelous, as it says in Psalm 118, verse 23. Christ Jesus is now the cornerstone of the church, the reason we have apostles and prophets and all the saints on earth and in heaven. For those who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus, we can go back to Luke 20, And take a look at verse 18. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind them to powder. This calls 
for an urgent decision. I heard recently that if an asteroid about 60 miles in length hits the earth right now, all life would end. I say this because there's something coming that's scarier than a stone from outer space. Daniel the prophet once interpreted a dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. In it, the the ruler first saw a great statue, the composite statue representing great empires of the world, but it was ultimately destroyed by a stone cut without hands. That stone became a great mountain that filled the earth. We have the interpretation in Daniel 2, 44. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. This is a prediction of what's to come. You don't want to stand on the wrong side of this approaching stone. You want to make peace with the king of that coming kingdom, the chief cornerstone who will rule on that mountain. As Isaiah 8, 14 to 15 tell us, Christ can either be your sanctuary or a stone of stumbling. He can be the rock of salvation or the rock of offense. Which will it be? There's no middle ground. We already stand right on the path of this advancing kingdom. If we don't do something, we'll be broken into pieces, ground into powder. The solution, first, repent as John the Baptist preached. Admit that you've sinned. We've all failed to pray. We've been greedy, at least at one point. We've cared more about what people say than what God says. Some of us may have even mocked and mistreated God's servants. All of us have sinned at one point in thought, word, and deed. We deserve to be destroyed and pulverized, to be tormented in hell forever. But praise God that there is a solution. God the Father sent his Son, who deserves all the respect in the world. Yet as we find in Isaiah 53, 3-5, he was despised, rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We did not esteem him. But he went to Jerusalem willingly to save us, even those who oppose him. He died on the cross to bear our griefs, carry our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He was truly rejected on the cross, but he rose again from the dead, He became the chief cornerstone. He'll return someday, and there will be judgment of all mankind. This is the time to be reconciled to God. Do not be like the chief priests and the scribes. Do not resist the authority of Christ. Do not live governed by the fear of man. Fear God instead. Honor God's Son and trust in Him. Eternal life is given by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. There's nothing you can do to 
earn your way to heaven. Consider what we sang earlier and make it your confession of faith. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And consider what we'll sing as we close. You'll see in page 15. And think carefully about the final verse. Here we have a firm foundation. Here, the refuge of the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation. His the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we weren't there 2,000 years ago when your son walked the earth and spoke in villages and towns and ultimately in Jerusalem. Many heard you, were offended by what you said. It's frightening to think that people regarded as the most pious, most religious most devoted to you, at least outwardly, they're the ones who are most opposed to your plan of salvation. May that serve as a warning to us, especially those who do not know you. And as we think about people in this country or even all around us in Maryland who think themselves to be religious, pray that we will pray for their souls, that we will tell them the truth, that they must submit to you in your word, in your son Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.